Amen. You may be seated. You know, this thought just, just occurred to me out of nowhere. I don't know where it came from, but sometimes life breaks a guitar string and you just have to keep playing. Give it up for Matt for getting through that song with a busted guitar string. So that, that's, that's, just, that's the sermon today. Thanks for coming. Have a great day. Um, now, I, good morning. Welcome home. Good to see all of you today. Thank you, those of you joining us online. If this is your first Sunday with us or your first time to log on and join us that way, my name's Adam. I'm the discipleship pastor. Our lead pastor, Kyle, is down at our Columbus campus this morning. And uh, before we jump into the sermon, I just want to make a quick announcement, a quick plug. We're really excited to offer something today. Um, called Holy Week Devotionals. Now, what that means is next, starting next week, next Sunday, is Holy Week. It goes from Palm Sunday all the way through the crucifixion of Jesus on Friday to the resurrection on Sunday. And we call that Holy Week. And so we've put together a resource to help you really just buckle down and spend some good time with the Lord uh, for that week leading up to the resurrection. And so there's a, basically for each day, for eight days, starting next Sunday, there's a little short devotional you can read. There are some scripture passages that you can read. Hopefully you'll do that if you don't do any, if you don't use any other part of it. But then there's also kind of a little tool for each day to help you think through what you read and apply what you read. And so we have these available under the offering boxes as you exit the sanctuary. Um, and then also it's online. So you can go to our website if you want to just download it to one of your devices and use it that way. Those of you watching online, you're welcome to do that as well. So we'll have these available uh, in person today and then next Sunday. It actually starts next Sunday. And then I think it's already out on the website. You can download that at any time. So take advantage of that and just, um, just make it a priority to really spend some good time with God, to really spend some time in the Word and in prayer next week as we lead into Resurrection Sunday, which is two weeks from today. Well, Kyle, he started a, a series for us a couple weeks ago, just walking through the book of Philippians. It's a, it's a book in the New Testament. It was a letter that Paul wrote to uh, a church in the city of Philippi. And so we're just kind of walking through it passage by passage. And last week, we saw how Paul tells us that we're citizens of heaven. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, this world is not your home. Your home is in heaven. And at one point in last week's passage, he said, conduct yourselves accordingly, right? Live as a citizen of heaven, not as a citizen of this world. And we briefly touched on a few ways that we can live that out. Well, as Paul moves into chapter two of Philippians, if you want to find that in your Bible or your Bible app, then he begins to really flesh out what, what, what I really think is the foundational way that we live as citizens of heaven and not of this world. I mean, it's kind of like if we, if we don't get anything else right, if we get this right, everything else kind of falls in place. And so he starts though, near the beginning of chapter two, he has this, he, he has, he, okay, imagine if in this sermon I quoted for you a song that we sometimes sing in our worship services. And I quoted that song for you in order to make a point. Right, sometimes a pastor, sometimes a preacher will do that. Well, Paul does that near the beginning of Philippians 2. There's this passage that some scholars refer to as, as a Christ hymn. They call it a Christ hymn because one, it's about Jesus. It's about the person and work of Christ and what he did for us. Um, but then they call it a hymn because 
most scholars think that it was just that. It was maybe a song that they sang in worship. It may have been like a reading that they would sometimes read publicly. So Paul is pulling that into what he's saying in order to make a point. And here's what, here's what it is. Here's the Christ hymn of Philippians 2. This is absolutely foundational to our beliefs and our theology as Christians. Here's what he says. Here's the hymn. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He's talking about Jesus. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor. He gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah and amen. That is our Christian theology, that God became flesh, took our sin to the cross, rose again on the third day, and is enthroned over all of creation. That is foundational to what we believe as Christians. Now, lots of sermons have been preached on this. Books have even been written on it. But what we're asking today is, remember, we we think this is something Paul pulled into the letter to make a point. So what we're focusing on today is, what was his point? How does Paul use this letter or use this hymn in his letter? Now, before we do that, I want to say this. You know, last week, um, I really, I'm afraid I really caused some major division in the congregation and may have really caused some fights at at home. I I hope not. But, you know, I offered you a, a couple things. I said, you know, would you rather have barbecue or steak? Would you rather go to the mountains or the beach? I figured that one probably caused a lot of fights. I mean, in this service, Pastor Kyle said mountains. His wife, Whitney, said beach. I, I mean, I, I hope they're not in marriage counseling this week and planning separate vacations. I, I don't know. But, but in case we stirred up some trouble with those two deep questions, I'm going to try to fix that today, okay? I'm going to try to fix that. So here's what Paul says. To see how he uses this Christ hymn in his letter, we've got to go back to the beginning of the chapter. And here's how he starts chapter 2, verse 1. He says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort from his love? Is there any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Well, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and with one Purpose. In other words, what Paul is saying, if you go back to the, to the first verse, if these things are true, and the implication is, and I know they are, if these things are true, and I know they are, then bring joy to my heart by getting along. It's kind of like, you know, if I tell my boys, uh, you know, if you want to get with your friends this weekend, then I need you to get this done. Right? And if I say that, it's because I know that they want to get with their friends. And so I'm using that as motivation to say, okay, then get this done. So that's kind of what Paul is saying. If these things are true and I know they are, then let that motivate you even further. Bring joy to my heart by getting along. You see, apparently there was some conflict in the Philippian church. We know that. This actually gives us some foreshadowing because later in the letter, Paul's going to address a specific conflict between two people, and he actually calls them out by name, 
Imagine if here right now, I just called two of you out by name and said, hey, get along. That's kind of what he does. I really want to do that to somebody, but I won't. I'm looking at you, Jason. I really want to do that. So apparently there was some conflict in the Philippian church. And Paul's saying, you know what? You can bring joy to my heart by getting along. If you have kids, you know how joyful it is when your kids get along, right? And they share, and they solve their disagreements, and they're not fighting, they're spending time together, hanging out. Man, what a joyful thing it is. And what a frustrating thing it is when they're not. Well, how much more do you think God feels that way about us? How much joy do you think it brings God's heart when we, his children, get along with each other? So what we're talking about today is unity. Now, I know some of you, I'm just, just, let's just call attention to it. Some of you are looking at that going, wah, wah, that's exciting. Okay, we need to understand today, us getting along is really really important to God. The Bible talks about it all over the place, all throughout scripture. We see how important it is that we as his people love each other, not just in the context of the church, but in our homes and in the workplace and in all the relationships that we have. It brings joy to God's heart when we get along. In fact, Psalm Psalm 133 says this, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. So today we're talking about unity, we're talking about harmony, we're talking about getting along in our relationships. Now here's the thing, we often pray for unity in the church. God, let there be unity in the church. But we need to realize, I, I don't know that unity is something that God just bestows on us. Right, I can pray, there's certain things I can pray for. If you come up to me and say, hey, um, my aunt so-and-so is really sick, will you pray for her? I can pray for her, but there's nothing actively, I, you know, unless God supernaturally gives me the ability to heal her, I can't, all I can do is pray. I can't do anything, act, you know, that's all I can do is pray. But when it comes to unity in the church, I'm not sure that that's just something that just happens, That's something that every single one of, not just in the church, but in all of our relationships, that's something that each one of us, we all have to play a part. If you want harmony in your relationships, you have a part to play in that. If I want unity or harmony in the church, I have a part to play in that. And so the question we're asking is, what is that part? What is that part? Here's, Paul says this in another place. If it is possible, say those yellow words with me, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Man, that that one verse is jam-packed. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know what he's saying there? He's saying do your part. Control what you can, oops, control what you can control. Like hold on to the, thing in your hand. Just control what you can control. My, my 10 year old Ethan, he, um, he told me Friday, I think it was, he and some friends of his had, let's just say they'd had a playground disagreement. Okay. And he told me, he told me, he said, dad, he said, later in the day, I went up to one of my friends and I said, Hey, sorry about earlier. Now, first of all, 
proud dad brag moment, okay, that my 10-year-old took the initiative to try to go make it right. I'm proud of him for that. But then he said, Dad, he just kind of blew me off. And I said, buddy, that's okay. Because you know what? You did what you're supposed to do. You did the right thing. You can't control what anybody else does. You can't control how anybody responds. But you choose to do the right thing. And I'm proud of you for that. That's what Paul's saying here. Do your part. You want harmony? You want unity? You want to get along in your relationships? Do your part. You can't control what the other person does. Do your part. Control what you can control. So what part then do we need to play in all of this? Well, as Paul keeps going in verse 3, he tells us what our part is. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Now, when I first started thinking about this, my my initial plan was to just kind of go through each of these elements and kind of break down each of those. And then as I got to thinking through that, I realized something. I realized that all of them really go back to the very first thing he said. Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. Think about it. Uh, Don't try to impress others. There's kind of a selfishness to always trying to impress others, right? You put stuff on social media that kind of creates a picture that isn't quite accurate because you want to impress people, or maybe you tell stories because you want to make yourself look good, stories that are maybe half true or not true, you want to make yourself look good. There's a selfishness to that, right? Be humble. Well, someone who's, you know, the opposite of that is is somebody who's full of pride. Well, that's kind of a, that's a form of selfishness. Think of others as better than yourselves. When you think of yourself as better than everybody else, that's the self-centeredness. Don't look out only for your own interests. Well, that's the very definition of selfishness. Looking out for yourself and not worrying about anybody else. So all of these things really, I almost dropped it again. All of these things really come back to this one thing. Don't be selfish. Now, that's pretty elementary, right? We all know that. We've been told that from the time we were this big. We've told our kids that since they were this big. Maybe you've told your grandkids that since they were this big. We all know, don't be selfish. Well, I want to put a little bit, kind of a, kind of a twist on being selfishness or, or an angle or a perspective on selfishness today that we don't often think about. And then I'm going to give you two really practical ways to avoid that in your relationships. So here's the, here's the kind of the perspective on selfishness that we, we don't always connect these two things, but I'll show you how they're connected. So the first thing is watch out for unhealthy competition. Now, how many of you raise your hand if you're just really competitive by nature? Raise your hand, those of you competitive by nature. If you're watching online, feel free to chime in in the comments. Okay, if you just raised your hand and you were, you were saying, you, you know, you're so competitive, you were trying to raise your hand higher than anybody else, you have a problem and you need to get some help. You need to get some help. Right? I, had a, I heard a guy once, he, he said, he, it was a guy I heard preaching, and he said, I'm so competitive, sometimes I will watch two raindrops drip down a window to see which one hits the bottom first. That's a problem. That is a problem. It's, yeah, I just, yeah, so, I do that. <laughs> Here's the thing. Being competitive is not, 
that's not a character flaw. That's not a bad thing. Some people are just wired with this competitive nature, but like every personality trait, there are really good things that come from that, but there's also things you gotta watch out for if you're really competitive like that. And one of the things, the main thing that you have to watch out for if you're really competitive is you gotta make sure that that competitive nature is directed in the right direction. I've worked with couples before. You know, sometimes I'll work with a couple and like they'll both be super hyper competitive. And what I tell them is that for you to have a healthy marriage, it's not, you, don't, you don't have to stop being who you are. You don't have to stop being competitive. You just have to channel the competition in the right direction. In other words, instead of competing against each other in your marriage, you are competing against an unhealthy marriage. You are competing against divorce. So you don't have to stop being who you are. You just have to channel it in the right direction. In fact, Sarah and I, Sarah and I are convinced, if you've been through our marriage conference, you've heard us say this. This is a big part of, of, uh, of some of the material in our marriage conference. Sarah and I are more and more convinced the biggest issue, the biggest challenge in marriage is not communication, it's competition. Because too many couples, and Sarah and I, especially early on, we've, had, we've gotten better. We're still not there, but we've gotten better. But I think most couples, they'll tell you, well, no, we're not competitors, we're teammates, but they really function and treat each other like competitors. And I don't care how good you can communicate, I don't care how well, you know, how good your communication skills are, if you view and treat the people in your life as competitors, it doesn't matter how well you communicate. Your teammates. This isn't just true in marriage, this is true in all of your relationships. Your teammates. So here's, here's what happens. If you say, well, I don't, I don't compete, you know, especially in marriage, you know, no, we're, we're, we're teammates, we're not competitors. Okay, here's the test. What happens when you disagree on something? What happens when one of you wants to go to the mountains and one of you wants to go to the beach? One of you wants steak and one of you wants barbecue. What happens? Here's what, here's what often happens. You have your opinion or you have your want or you have your need you have your perspective, the other person has theirs, and then what happens? You both dig in your heels, right? I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands. You dig in your heels, and then it becomes what? It becomes a competition to see who can either get the other person to come over to their side or who can get the other person to just give up and say, fine, we'll do what you want. In other words, the, the goal become, when you're, when you're competitors and not teammates, the goal becomes, I want to win this. That's competition. If you're looking to win something, that is competition. The competition is because you want it your way, you want your opinion to win out, you want your need or your want to get met, and that's what you're focused on, and you're digging in your heels, and that, my friends, is the very definition of selfishness. You're trying to win because you want it your way. So am I making sense here? Are you seeing the link here between selfishness and competition that we don't often think about? Think about it this way. Selfishness often reveals itself as unhealthy competition in our relationships. Selfishness often reveals itself as unhealthy competition in our relationships. So let me give you two practical things 
to help avoid that selfish and unhealthy competition in all your relationships and in the church. So here's the first thing. Listen to understand, not to reply. There's a lot of listening to reply going on in our culture today and not much listening to understand. Here's how, this, here's how it works. Somebody says something to me and I don't, I don't think I fully agree with them. I have a different opinion. I have a different want. I have a different need. I have a different perspective. And so as they're telling me their side, instead of listening, instead of trying to understand where they're coming from, I'm already formulating in my mind why they're wrong. Some of you are chuckling. You know what I'm talking about, right? I'm already formulating in my mind how I'm going to show them that they're wrong or their idea is stupid or maybe that they're stupid. That's listening to reply. What if you took a breath and said, okay, I don't think I, I, don't think I agree with this. I think I have a different opinion, a different want. But I want to at least understand where they're coming from. I want to at least understand that. And that doesn't mean that you have to eventually agree with them. Sometimes I think we don't want to understand where people are coming from because we somehow think that means, oh, well, that means that I'm going to agree with them. No, it doesn't. You can still disagree with the conclusion, but at least make an effort to understand why do they think this? Why do they feel this way? Why do they have this want? Why do they have this need? What led them to this perspective? At least try to understand where they're coming from. That applies to marriage, that applies to people you work with, that applies to your kids. Way, way too many times in raising our kids have I realized after the fact, man, I didn't even listen to what he was getting at. I just immediately formed my conclusion and jumped on him. And I've done that to my wife, I've done that to people at work, you know what, if we're honest, all of us have. So this applies in whatever arena of life you're in. Just try to understand where people are coming from. My word, do I dare bring up the political climate today? If you're on the other side of the fence, you're automatically wrong. If you're on my side of the fence, you're automatically right. You know what, the other side isn't always wrong. And your side isn't always right. At least just try to understand and have the humility maybe to say, okay, they kind of have a point here. But we don't do that anymore. Because when we listen or when we read the other side, we're automatically thinking of how we can show that they're stupid. Listen to understand, not to reply. If you're going to avoid selfish competition, and digging in your heels to try to win a disagreement, you can start by just trying to understand where the other person's coming from. So listen to understand, not reply. Here's the second thing. Look for the third option. Look for the third option. Once again, here's what happens. You disagree with somebody, having a different opinion, different want, need, perspective, whatever, different agenda. And then you become so selfishly focused on your point and making your point and showing them how they're wrong and the other side, they're doing the same thing and you're arguing over these two options and very often 
Over here, there's a third option that neither one of you are seeing because you're so focused on getting your way. That doesn't always happen, but I think it happens more often than we think, that there is a third option out here that might even take into, into consideration the best of both perspectives. But you gotta take a breath, and you gotta stop long enough to hear them out and say, okay, is there a third option here that we can look at? Sarah and I, um, several years ago, we replaced, uh, we put down some new flooring in our, in our old house, and there was this really bad transition from the entryway into the family room where the new flooring was. There was a really big lip. Okay, now, now being a guy, and I'm, I'm, yes, this is a stereotype, but this is often true. There's always exceptions, but usually we guys, you know, we're focused on function, right? How does it work? Does it work? Only thing I was concerned with, I don't want to trip over this lip in the middle of the night. Women, generally speaking, there are always exceptions, are usually more focused on appearance. What's it going to look like? And, and by the way, if you are married, that one thing right there might completely revolutionize your marriage, okay? Well, about the time we were doing this, Sarah and I were in the middle of putting all the material together for, our, for this marriage conference. And so this was on my mind and this might be the first time in our marriage, I don't know how long we've been married at that point, probably 15 years, might be the first time that I actually got this right. And I said, okay, all I care about is I don't want to trip. She's going to care about what it looks like. So I took her two options. I said, we can do this transition this way, or we can do it this way. Which one likes best? And you know what? As we talked through it, we came up with a third option that was better than both of them. But if I had entered that conversation set on only one way, and she heard what I said and became set on only one way, we wouldn't have found the third option. And the third option was better. Because here's what happens. You can have a good option, the other person can have a good option, but if you set aside that selfish competition, you can together come up with a great option. I can't tell you how many times we have seen this played out in our staff here at church. When I first got here, man, I, I, okay, I can't say I wanted to pull my hair out. I obviously can't do that. But there were times when I first got here that I was like, my word, and I'm a pretty analytical person. And there were times where I would think, my word, how many times are we going to walk around this thing? But I realize what, what happens often in, in staff as we're making decisions, this person will throw in this input, this person will have this idea, this person will suggest this, and they're all good things. And as we continue to walk around it and walk around it, we usually land on something that's greater than anything that one of us would have come up with individually. We're really... God really helps us to take good opinions, good perspectives, good ideas, and somehow as we walk around them and circle around them to come up with things that are greater. You know why that works? You know why that works on our staff? Because there's no competition on our staff. Nobody wants anybody's job. We all want each other to win because we want the church to win and we want the kingdom to win. 
And because there's no competition, we can walk around and around and around a, 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 an issue or a topic and everybody throw something out and eventually arrive at something that's even greater. But that's because there's not competition on our staff. Now, what about when there isn't a third option? Like I said, sometimes there's not. Are we going to keep the cats or are we going to get rid of the cats? That was one, that was a discussion Sarah and I had to have years ago. It wasn't a really third option there. Like I said, I do believe the third option is out there more often than we think. We just don't see it because we're too dug in on our own opinion. But sometimes it's not. What do you do when there really is no third option? Well, then you got to go back to what Paul said at the beginning. Be humble. When there's no third option, be humble. You don't have it all figured out. You're not always right. Your opinion isn't always the best. Be humble. When there's no third option, think of others as better than yourselves. When there's no third option, don't look out only for your own interest. That, that is a mic drop from Paul right there. When there is no third option, don't just look out for yourself. Look out for the other person. Make a decision. I want to take this other person into account as we make this decision. In fact, sometimes we just have to, how's this for a novel idea, living out what the Bible says? Sometimes we just have to live out what Paul says in this verse, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I know nobody likes that word submit. I think that's because that word, it carries a a meaning with it in our culture that isn't necessarily intended in Scripture. One way to think about submitting is it's just setting aside your agenda for the sake of someone else's. Sometimes when there's no third option, we just have to set aside our agenda out of love for the other person. And not be bitter about it and not use it as ammo down the road, but out of love, say, I'm going to go with what you're saying. Because I love you. And because having, real, having harmony and unity in this relationship, this relationship is more important to me than getting my way. So I'm going to submit to you. You know what happens when two people in any relationship will practice that kind of love for each other? That's when relationships become the beautiful things that God created them to be. When we love each other this way, when we love each other enough to sometimes set aside our agenda for the sake of someone else's. Now, that has to be mutual. It can't always be the same one saying, okay, we're going to go, right? That doesn't work. But when they kind of take turns, that's when it's a beautiful thing. Setting aside their own agenda for the sake of someone else's. Now, to clarify here, I'm not talking about compromising on moral issues or things that the Bible is crystal clear on, right? There are some things that the Bible is non-negotiable about. This is right or this is wrong. I'm not talking about compromising on those kind of things. I'm talking about the things that should be negotiable. Things like our opinions, our wants, our needs, our agenda. 
being willing at times to set that aside and say, I'm gonna go with what, you're, with what you want here, with what you think, out of respect and love for you. Now, that brings us then to the way Paul uses this hymn that we looked at at the beginning. As Paul, everything we just said, everything Paul just wrote about how to conduct our relationships, he says all of that, and then here is how he transitions from that to this Christ hymn that we read. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And from right there, he gives us, he talks to us about this self-giving, self-sacrificing love that God showed us when he became flesh and took our sin to the cross. In other words, our example in this kind of self-giving, self-sacrificing love that brings unity and harmony to our relationships and to the church This self-giving, self-sacrificing love was modeled for us by none other than Jesus himself. That is Paul's point with this hymn. So what I wanna do, I've given you you this passage in pieces and I've even given it to you kinda out of order. So I wanna go back to verse one and I want you to see how Paul weaves all of this together to make his point. At the very beginning in verse one, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort from his love? Is there any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. If all these things are true, and I know they are, bring joy to my heart by getting along. Well, how do you do that? Well, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others also. In fact, he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, and he gave him the name that is above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The love of Jesus, in other words, is a self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And he showed us that. He showed us how to live that way. And he showed us how to, you know, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified, and he said, God, I don't want to do this, but not my will, but yours be done. As he surrendered himself completely to God and submitted himself completely to God. And he did that out of love, self-giving, self-sacrificing love for you and for me. And then the Bible says, go and do likewise. Go love each other as God has loved you. See, the love of Jesus, it's a love that sacrifices pride. 
It's a love that sacrifices self-centeredness and selfishness. In fact, it's a love that says it's not about me and how you can serve me and how you can make me happy. In fact, that's really not love at all. The love of Jesus is a love that says it's about you and it's about your well-being and it's about me serving you. That is the foundation for any healthy relationship in your life. You can't control what the other person does, but you can choose. I'm gonna show this kind of love for the people in my life. I'm gonna at times submit, lay lay my agenda aside for the sake of somebody else. That's the foundation of unity and harmony in our relationships. It is the self-giving, self-sacrificing love that Jesus himself modeled for us. So I want to ask you this morning as our band comes, I want to ask everybody to just bow your heads for a second, close your eyes. You're always welcome to come to the altar as we sing here in a minute, but right now I just want you to, to pray right where you are in your seat for just a minute. And before you pray, I want you to think about the different relationships in your life. Whether that's your spouse, if you're married, or your kids, or your parents, siblings, roommates, coworkers, people at church. As you think about those relationships, would you just take a minute to pray silently? God, how can I demonstrate the self-giving, self-sacrificing love of Jesus to these people in my life? God, how can I show me how I can better love them the way you have loved me? Just take a minute and pray that prayer for a second. Father, your word tells us that um, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And I thank you for that promise today because I don't know how much we can love each other this way in our own strength. We need you to cleanse us of our selfishness and self-centeredness that we're all prone to. God, just make us more like Jesus who emptied himself, became a humble servant for our sakes. Help us to just love as you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name.